0: Welcome to the Fermenting Place podcast, one of the few podcasts that concerns itself with the co-ferment of people and place. Here, we take deep dives by casual conversation into the infinitely fascinating world of fermented beverages such as wine and other drinks. I'm your host, Daniel Honan. Have a bit of an interesting episode for you. It's an in-between episode, I think they used to call them on podcasts back in the day. Don't worry, next week's episode is still on schedule. It's a good one, so stay tuned for that. But I wanted to do something a little bit different in that I wanted to read to you an article that I wrote recently and posted to my website, uh, honandaniel.com. The article came about um, after (laughs) well years, really. Uh, thinking on this notion of sustainability, talking to growers, talking to marketers, talking to anyone that really wanted to um, voice their product um, and say that it was sustainable. I used to write a weekly uh, blog uh, called The Wine Idealist and I would talk to farmers, growers, uh, viticulturalists, vignerons, winemakers, so on and so forth, which were purportedly um, either natural, organic or biodynamic and then this led to me wanting to do an honors thesis on the subject so that i could devote a little bit more time and dive a little bit deeper into this uh, question of sustainability this question of attachments to place which is kind of where the podcast stems from also but i could never quite link the two it wasn't really until i started to understand what money was that i started to comprehend why notions of sustainability kept being co-opted diluted and debased and that sounds strange but if you understand what money is then you can extrapolate out to how it affects everything runs downstream effectively from the money which you'll hear in the article that I I read but effectively um, I contest that all current concepts of sustainability are fundamentally unsustainable because of reasons and I would urge you if you haven't got the time to sit down and read the article. It is relatively lengthy. That's why I recorded an audio version of the article so that if you don't have the time to sit down and read a relatively lengthy thesis on why I think all current concepts of sustainability are fundamentally unsustainable, that you can just pop it on to your podcast feed and listen along while you're driving your tractor or driving down the street hanging out the washing or, you know, whatever it may it may be. I wanted to make it more accessible um, and easy for people to uh, get the information out there. Now, I'm not claiming to be an expert on any of the things that I write about in the thesis. I'm, I'm merely trying to spread some ideas, put some ideas out there to generate some discussion uh, around this concept. I, uh, I truly believe that the solution that I put forward is an incredibly viable and and important solution to consider. Uh, But more than that, it would be so great if people could start comprehending this all too easily missed notion of what money is and how it links to all of the things that we spend our time and energy trying to rail against, trying to change, trying to to go out and do and make better. I know that there's many of you listening that are wine growers and wine makers who are looking for ways to truly be sustainable um, by adopting regenerative agricultural practices or being organic or exploring biodynamics and that sort of thing. But the problem is the economics always gets in the way. And unless you're an existing asset holder that can leverage some of your existing farmland to generate enough capital to Explore these alternative farming measures. Um, it's really difficult to um, to allocate the right amount of time and and money that it takes to to truly uh, explore these sorts of things. And you know, even if you're a younger wine grower and uh, and you wanted to, you have dreams of, of of one day farming your own vineyard or farming your own land and really making a valuable contribution to your community by not um, not destroying it ecologically by utilizing all of these synthetic agrochemicals, it's really important to even get a foothold into the market because land is so expensive. The idea of um, of spending your time and energy farming um, to earn very little effectively in in return um, you're so disincentivized to do that, and so you're generally going to go and do something else and it's unfortunate because i would imagine that there'd be so many smart bright intelligent um, talented people that could commit their time and energy to such a such a pursuit and really make a goal of it and probably even um, be successful as in be successfully sustainable but you can't because the current economic system is so stacked against you so I wanted to put these uh, concepts out there, I wanted to generate a bit of a discussion and the reason that I recorded this episode um, and the, this, this reading of the article was so that it would reach more people, those people that don't really have the time or inclination to sit down and you know read a 25 minute uh, article. So I'd do it for you, I thought I'd do it for you and, uh, and then you guys can listen along and hopefully off the back of this we get to more people you guys want to share it around? That would be awesome. Um, obviously, jump onto the website, read the article for yourself, um, send it around, and, and generate a bit of a discussion amongst your peers, um, and test test my uh, my thesis. Tell me if I'm wrong. What am I missing? What could I um, what could I know about that would improve the, the 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 overall thesis and that sort of thing? So yeah. Anyway. I wanted to write this uh, to try and generate a discussion and I thought, well, I could reach a wider, wider audience if I posted a, a brief uh, audio version of it on my podcast and uh, and that way it can reach more people. So, you know, uh, I'm kind of rambling here. Effectively, please listen, like, share and enjoy and yeah, discuss it. Come come back at me. Send me an email. Send me a, a DM on Instagram or a tweet on Twitter or whatever. Um, connect with me and and let's hash this out you know I'd really love to get someone on the podcast maybe to discuss it a little bit more and refine these ideas you know iron sharpens iron so uh, have a listen see what you think uh, let it percolate a little while and then reach out to me and and discuss it and uh, yeah let's let's try and build community, let's try and build a, a, a tribe, let's try and, you know, really pursue this idea because I think that it's worthwhile and I know that there's others within the space uh, that, that think along the same lines but I'm always curious to hear other sides of the story and uh, and be proven wrong because that's the only way that we really progress. So. Have a listen, see what you think, and uh, you know, I, welcome, I welcome the discussion that ensues. The Grapes of Wrath Grow Heavy, Why Contemporary Notions of Sustainability Are Unsustainable by Daniel J. Honan The first rule of sustainability is to align with natural forces, or at least, not try to defy them. Paul Hawken Whenever a word loses its meaning, a marketer gets their wings. Sustainability may be the most misused word in the English language. It is a word that many modern-day agriculturalists, primary producers, and their various representative groups, organisations, and associations, especially within the world of wine, love to use. The majority of people that use the word sustainable don't understand what the word means. Often, the word sustainable is used by producers, and more often than them, marketers, who think that, by using the term, it enables them to morally differentiate their product by giving them a quick and instant coat of greenwash. Perhaps, but it's a light coat, a superficial spray of verdant, that easily washes off by even the most slightly informed line of inquiry as to what sustainable actually means. This is especially true whenever such advocates for sustainability are asked exactly how the concept of sustainability is applied in practice to the production of their specifically described sustainably labelled product. I contest that all current concepts of sustainability are fundamentally unsustainable. From the popular Lodi rules in California and Sustainable Wine Growers New Zealand, to Entwine, Fresh Care, Sustainable Wine Growing Australia, or whatever the name of the laggard program that purports sustainability in the Australian wine industry currently is, each and every one of these programs is fundamentally unsustainable. Which is not to say that these programs are without merit, that they are not well-intentioned, well-meaning, or indeed, possess the innate ability to continue to operate in an ongoing, perpetual, and sustained manner. Certainly, such programs are sustainable in the same way that clocks and calendars are sustainable, or that landfill is sustainable, or how books, glassware, football teams, and even the seemingly infinite set of ideas that are applied to promote sustainability are, themselves, inherently sustainable, which is to say that they are continuous ongoing and persistent in their existence. Sustainability, as the term is currently applied freely and greenly, especially to agriculture, is, however, principally, intrinsically and substantially unsustainable. Using less water, turning off your lights, your computer, your printer, even the air conditioner in your John Deere ZR210 will not make you all of a sudden sustainable. The problem isn't switching off or using less energy per se, an impossible proposition anyway, see Jervin's paradox, and, as already mentioned, it has nothing to do with the existence of a certain certification program that one may or may not be a member of. Moreover, it isn't your acknowledgement or misunderstanding of a particular muddied definition of sustainability either. Most are terrible, by the way. Importantly, and perhaps disappointingly, The problem of sustainability does not relate to your own concerted efforts around a reduction or reliance on synthetic agrochemicals used to manage your farm. In fact, it barely has anything to do at all with the particular way in which you choose to manage your land, whether that be using conventional high farming, characterised by a central focus on synthetic agrochemical inputs, organic, biodynamic or the increasingly popular regenerative modes of farming. Indeed. Not a single one of these aims, aspirations, targets or methods matter because at the root of it all, the economic operating system that our world and thus you and I and each of these modes of farming currently runs on is defective and corrupt, which is to say explicitly that the money is broken. While ever the money is broken, true sustainability as we think we understand it is impossible to achieve. That is, it is unsustainable. Money is the cornerstone of civilization. When money is corrupt, civilizations are soon corrupted. Just as glyphosate runs downhill into the nearest watercourse, a civilization's culture runs downhill from the money. The type of money we use to exchange and trade goods and services with one another, i.e., the notes in your pocket or the digits on your screen, is malfunctioning, is unsustainable, and is no longer fit for purpose, if it ever was. This is a real problem, hidden in plain sight, strangely hard to detect, yet nonetheless true. And once you see it, you cannot unsee it. Historian Yuval Noah Harari suggests money is a psychological construct, a intersubjective reality that exists solely in people's shared imagination. This only hints at half the story. In essence, money is a system of value that connects people across space and time, allowing them to trade products, goods, and services with one another in order to acquire the things they want. Today, the world's economies run on unsustainable fiat money. Fiat is a form of currency often issued by government by authoritative sanction, decree, command, or order. This means that it and its subsequent value exists solely because someone, like a government, says that its value exists. Fiat is unsustainable money, which is endorsed by nothing tangible whatsoever. Not gold, not silver, not salt, not even the countless grains of sand on the beach. Fiat is a money which has a natural tendency to inflate, and any money that can have its supply cheaply and easily increased will rapidly destroy the wealth of those using it as a store of value. Take a look at the hyperinflationary events of Weimar Germany, 1918 to 1933, or of present-day Venezuela for good examples of this. The pliable digital currency of our modern age is an historical anomaly. Fiat money is a drug very similar to the synthetic fertilisers used to grow high-yielding commercial crops, big, heady and fast across great swathes of land. Drugs can be useful in the short term, but absolutely destructive, if abused over the long. Fiat money is a narcotic. It is abusive and destructive, far too easy for too few to create and thus far too easy to debase, degrade and devalue. Fiat money favours the short term over the long term. It is money by design, which intentionally devalues and depreciates your time and energy, i.e. your work. It surreptitiously, indeed, Deceitfully increases incentives concerning the prevalence of immoral and harmful actions that often result in unseen and unintended consequences. Consequences which are typically written off as negative externalities. Such unsound and unsustainable money is deeply destructive, deleterious and damaging to the ecological environment and thus to humans and civilization more generally." I contend that contemporary notions of sustainability which operate from within an inflationary economic system fostered by fiat money, a system predicated on infinite growth, does not, cannot, and will not align with the limitations set and imposed by a planet comprised of finite resources. The corruption and manipulation of money is by an order of magnitude the greatest contribution to environmental destruction the world has ever known. Thus... While ever the primary producers of the world operate their business using unsound fiat money, all current concepts of sustainability are fundamentally unsustainable. What is money? Who controls the food supply controls the people. Who controls the energy can control whole continents. Who controls money can control the world. Henry Kissinger Money is the most marketable or saleable good in an economy. It is a technology for storing and moving value across space and time. Think of it as a token of time or a battery for storing human energy. No one really wants money per se. What they want is what the money enables them to do. Money enables humans to trade their time and energy for the things they prefer, need or want. For instance, a bottle of wine and a nice meal, a holiday, or a team of laborers at vintage time, a new spray cart, or some scheduled servicing on the ZR210. We work by trading our present time and energy for money, with which we wish to spend on the things we want at some point in the future. Money is the universal medium of exchange used by individuals to trade their time and energy with one another. When you work, you expend time and energy, That time and energy is measured, represented, in the money you earn. Therefore, money is signified time and energy. People work to earn money, using it to store their value over space and time in order to trade it for the things they really need or want in the future. Ideally, the amount of money you earn correlates to the amount of value you provide to society, and arguably, farmers create the most amount of value of anyone, given that they grow the food we need in order to survive. And yet. Money has taken many forms over the years, from shells and beads to salt and cattle, and of course, silver and gold. Such monetary media was naturally selected over time because it was sufficiently scarce within a given culture in order to give it value, and, most importantly, it required a certain amount of work, time and energy spent, in order to find it, extract it, and thus earn it. Historically, sound monetary metals such as gold or silver were used as money due to their relative scarcity, fungibility, portability, durability, divisibility, soundness, resistance to counterfeiting or forgery, and their proportionally scarce distribution throughout the earth. Today, we use highly saleable government-issued paper, plastic, or more frequently, digitized fiat. This is a money which is issued or printed into existence under the instruction of a government by a nation's central bank. Whenever new money is printed or issued into an economy, the correlated value of any existing money in the economy drops as the existing supply is diluted. A simple analogy. There are 100 rookie Michael Jordan basketball cards in the world. If you discover the existence of a 101st card, then every one of the existing cards subsequently becomes less scarce and thus less valuable. This same dynamic is true with money. Every time an additional dollar is issued or printed into existence, the value stored in the total existing money supply gets diluted, that is, devalued, on a per-unit basis. Such easy issuance of fiat money made without exchanging any value or demonstrating any meaningful proof of work to earn it is, essentially, stealing time and energy from the people who do. Today's modern fiat money is absolutely abundant and requires very little effort to create it, issue it, and indeed use it. Just like every other instance of fiat money in history, today's fiat money is an unsound money that is innately inflationary, completely corruptible, and over time, as Voltaire is said to have put it, will tend to its intrinsic value of zero. Inflation Inflation is when you pay $15 for the $10 haircut you used to get for $5 when you had hair. Sam Ewing Inflation is defined as an increase in the quantity of money in circulation in a given economy. Many, however, typically think of inflation as the tendency for all prices and wages to rise over time. Most first world governments have monetary policies that aim at an official inflation target set between 2 and 3% annually. In simple terms, this means that your money is going to be worth somewhere between 2 and 3% less every year officially. Conversely, unless you get a raise that aligns with inflation, you will need to work somewhere between 2 and 3% harder every year just to maintain purchasing power. In 1980s Australia, a $4.20 per hour minimum wage had the same purchasing power that an $18.90 per hour job does today. A movie ticket that cost $7 in 1984 costs more than $20 today. A litre of petrol in Australia in 1982 was 59 cents. Today, that same litre of petrol is $1.48. People often wonder why it is increasingly hard to keep up with the cost of living. Inflation is why. Because inflation makes your money, your time and energy worth less over time. You may be familiar with the term quantitative easing, QE, which refers to a form of unconventional monetary policy whereby a central bank purchases government bonds or other financial assets in order to inject money into the economy to try to expand economic activity. QE is an obfuscating phrase that really means money printing, which is akin to counterfeiting. As demonstrated by the basketball card analogy, Inflating the money supply via QE makes money less scarce, which in turn makes money worth less over time. The ability of governments and central banks to consort to conduct QE, that is to effortlessly print more money into existence, out of thin air, without any restraint, aggregate friction, or proof of work whatsoever, is an immoral action that dilutes people's purchasing power while favouring existing asset holders and anyone closest to the money printer. See Cantillon effect. It also, unintentionally or otherwise, generates bad incentives that can cause harmful outcomes for both people and the environment. History is rife with examples of civilizations succumbing to the temptation of monetary manipulation, resulting in subsequent price inflation, leading to the initiation of immoral incentives becoming the catalyst for corrupt behaviour. Behaviour which ultimately eventuated in utterly unsustainable, even horrifyingly destructive outcomes. Virtually all fiat currencies throughout history have had their values completely destroyed by inflation. From the coin clipping in ancient Rome, the ray stones in Micronesia, whose corrupted currencies preceded the collapse of both their respective civilizations, the agri beads of West Africa, which preceded the North American slave trade, to hyperinflation in Weimar, Germany, which preceded World War II. It is far too tempting for the all too few who have direct access to the powers of the money printer not to use it for their own advantage. Today, we trade goods and services using modern variants of fiat money with its countless imprints of famous people, native animals and national myths. Modern fiat money is issued into existence by a nation's central bank with the all-too-simple stroke of a computer keyboard. It is this ease of action that effortlessly inflates the money supply and makes the money you work to earn become worth less and less over time. Consider the following parable, based on an explication by Gary North in his book Honest Money, of the hypothetical winemaker working within an unsound inflationary monetary system. One day a winemaker wakes up to news of recent QE measures undertaken by her government. Overnight, government policy doubled the money supply by decreeing the printing of billions, if not trillions of dollars to save the economy. The winemaker is now faced with three options. One, Continue selling her wine for $40 with the knowledge that the value of the dollar has just dropped by 50% thanks to a doubling of the money supply. 2. Add water and dilute the wine, or use cheaper inputs to reduce production costs, thus reducing the overall quality of her wine, but enabling her to continue selling it for $40. 3. Double the selling price of her wine to $80 in order to get the same value she was earning yesterday which is now denominated in the recently devalued dollars of today. If our winemaker chooses the first option, she will incur a 50% loss. If she chooses option two and decides to water down her wine, she will defraud her customers by selling them an inferior product. If she chooses to double the price of her wine to maintain quality and profitability, she runs the risk of losing customers to other less honest competitors who are willing to compromise on quality. Since diluting the wine or using cheaper inputs is more difficult to detect for most wine drinkers and offers immediate financial gain, many winemakers like her encounter strong and frequently involuntary incentives to take the path of least resistance. In this instance, then, the government's arguably well-intentioned money-printing policy has actually incentivized our winemaker to defraud her customers in order for her just to keep up with inflation. The effect of money printing to, quote, save the economy, has caused certain unintended consequences to manifest, including such fraudulent, albeit involuntary, actions to be undertaken by our winemaker. Action which will eventually erode the trust of her customers over time, thereby harming the long-term profitability and viability of her business. Undoubtedly, such actions are unsustainable. Inflation is the devaluation of currency. A devaluation of currency equates to reduced purchasing power. Less purchasing power means less wealth. Less wealth means less time, or more time working tomorrow to purchase the same exact things you bought yesterday. And, of course, less time means less freedom to do the things you want. In short, inflation is theft. Furthermore, as the parable demonstrated, inflation is the main driver of bad incentives, resulting in unseen negative externalities while exacerbating existing economic inequalities and covertly contributing to greater ecological and environmental destruction. Incentives When we change the way we grow our food, we change our food, we change society, we change our values. Masanobu Fukuoka Incentives matter. We act upon that which we value, which is often influenced by our incentives, long term or short term. When the incentives are moral, the tendency is towards good, positive outcomes. When the incentives are immoral, the tendency is towards bad, negative outcomes. Integrity and corruption are two sides of the same coin. When money is corrupt, civilizations are soon corrupted. Unsound money, like fiat money, is the prime mover of bad incentives. Getting the incentives right from the start is crucial. Wendell Berry's books and essays on modern farming in North America illuminate for the reader the social, financial, and environmentally unsustainable side effects of big, industrialized, corporatized, and increasingly centralized approaches to agriculture. Whether intentional or not, Modern manifestations of ancient agricultural systems are coerced to function this way thanks to the concealed compulsions of an endlessly extractive inflationary economic system which aims at infinite growth on a finite planet. In his essay, Think Little, Barry observes how, The American farmer is harder pressed and harder worked than ever before. His margin of profit is small. His hours are long. His outlays for land and equipment and the expenses of maintenance and operation are growing rapidly greater. He cannot compete with industry for labor. He is being forced more and more to depend on the use of destructive chemicals and on the wasteful methods of haste. He is being forced off the land into the cities. His place taken by absentee owners, corporations and machines. One of the ways in which the modern-day farmer is harder pressed, harder worked, and being forced off the land is through land monetization. Have you ever wondered why so much good farmland is being sold in order to be developed for the construction of yet another sprawling suburb with terrible names like Sunny Ridge or The Harvest? Land these days is literally being treated like money, i.e. a store of value. The more that land is treated as a surrogate store of value the more its use case as a space for actual food production gets priced out. It simply becomes too expensive to grow or produce anything on it. And so, often desperate, cash-strapped farmers are forced to subdivide and sell. It's very similar to how the monetization of gold made it so expensive for it to be used in the making of actual things. Gold is worth more when it sits in a vault, doing nothing. Than it is when it's being used to make various electronics like phones and computers, or space vehicles built by NASA, and of course, jewellery. Just as the monetization of gold priced out its economic use case as a very beneficial, albeit expensive, industrial metal, so too does the monetization of land price out its economic use case as a very beneficial, yet increasingly expensive, place to grow things like food which is a reasonably important thing for human beings and other animals to have available, right? In much, if not all, of Berry's writings on farming and agriculture, especially his lamentations regarding the behemothic rise of industrial agriculture in America, he paints an achingly beautiful picture of the modern distressed farmer wondering why his land, his livelihood, his history and heritage is becoming less profitable and no longer viable in the modern age. Like many of us, Berry mistakes the true reason for the expansion of industrial-scale agriculture resulting from artificial financial selection driven by unsound fiat money. By not realizing the role that money plays in a society and the subsequently skewed incentives that such unbridled QE money printing instantiates, Berry overlooks the root cause of the inexorable environmental destruction of American, and by extension global, farmland. Read his explication of the agricultural strip miner in The Unsettling of America. I conceive a strip miner to be a model exploiter and as a model nurturer I take the old-fashioned idea or ideal of a farmer. The exploiter is a specialist, an expert. The nurturer is not. The standard of the exploiter is efficiency. The standard of the nurturer is care. The exploiter's goal is money, profit, the nurturer's goal is health, his land's health, his own, his families, his communities, his countries. Whereas the exploiter asks of a piece of land only how much and how quickly it can be made to produce, the nurturer asks a question that is much more complex and difficult. What is its carrying capacity? That is, how much can be taken from it without diminishing it? What can it produce dependably for an indefinite time? The exploiter wishes to earn as much as possible by as little work as possible. The nurturer expects certainly to have a decent living from his work, but his characteristic wish is to work as well as possible. The competence of the exploiter is in organization. That of the nurturer is in order, a human order, that is, that accommodates itself both to other order and to mystery. The exploiter typically serves an institution or organization. The nurturer serves land, household, community, place. The exploiter thinks in terms of numbers, quantities, hard facts. The nurturer in terms of character, condition, quality, kind. What could possibly cause Barry's exploiter to emphasize maximum extraction for short-term profit over the long-term productive sustainability and ultimate health of his land, his environment, and by extension, himself, his family, and his community – which is to say, his place, money, the cornerstone of human civilization, which coincidentally was instigated by the agricultural revolution itself. The prevalence of Berry's agricultural exploiter throughout our modern society is a direct consequence of bad money, easily issued, unbacked, unsound, inflationary fiat money, initiating unintended consequences, often fueling bad outcomes. It is fiat money which incentivizes a tendency towards centralised and industrialised modes of agriculture. Such agriculture has more to do with achieving profitable economies of scale than it does with growing high quality nutritious food. Such agriculture requires enormous tracts of land to be cleared for broadacre farming, which destroys native habitat and disrupts natural ecosystems, even before a single seed has been sown. Fiat money artificially selects for a vast monoculture of non-native species of plants and animals to be intensively farmed, strip-mined for maximum short-term profit. This type of farming rapidly depletes, if not destroys, the very thing we all rely on to grow healthy, high-quality and nutritious food, the soil. Fiat money devastates soil fertility by encouraging ideas like the balance sheet theory of farming, which is the prevailing notion that soil health can easily be restored by fertilizing it only with the synthesized mineral nutrients of nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium, NPK for short, and that such large-scale farms are more productive when the liberal use of carcinogenic glyphosate and other inorganic agrochemical pesticides, fungicides, fertilizers, veterinary antibiotics and other supplementary medications are applied. Indeed, many contemporary farmers still believe that this is the only way to farm productively and profitably, this modern mode of thinking can be traced back to U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Earl Butts, who told America's farmers in 1973 to, quote, get big or get out, by planting commodity crops such as soy and corn, quote, from fence row to fence row. Coincidentally, our modern fiat money experiment got its start right around this time, thanks to the Nixon shock, which involved the U.S. going off the gold standard completely and ending the Bretton Woods International Monetary System in 1971. Take a look at what happened in 1971 after Nixon did this. If you go to the website and read the article, you'll find the link to a website, WTF, happened in 1971. I suggest clicking that link and checking that website out. It's quite incredible. Bad money, unsound money, fiat money, driving bad incentives and delivering bad outcomes. Remember, a civilization's culture runs downhill from the money. Despite mistaking the roots for the leaves, Berry's writing provides the reader, one who now comprehends the negative effects of inflation derived from an unsound money, with a valuable insight into the life of the well-intentioned, hard-working farmer. A farmer who, despite his best efforts, is beset on all sides with increasingly dwindling profits, and so is compelled to gradually shift away, over time, from being a sustainable nurturer of a given landscape, conscious of its carrying capacity, towards becoming an unsustainable exploiter of the environment, whether consciously or unconsciously, intentionally, voluntarily or not, simply so that he may continue to farm the land as profitably as possible in order to feed himself, his family, contribute to his community, and meet with the ever-increasing costs of living and working that our day and age demands. The Grapes of Wrath Grow Heavy for the Vintage. Eventually, the covert force of inflation overwhelms the farmer, or his subsequent generations, who is desperate to maintain the parity of his farm's past productive capacity with that of the freewheeling central bank money printer liberally going burr and rapidly monetizing the land right out from under him. To reiterate, QE, or central bank money printing, unconsciously incentivizes a race to the bottom by biasing the motivations of the farmer and the winemaker who desperate for profit over a long enough time frame, is compelled to seek cheaper and cheaper inputs with which to manage their farm in order to maintain and sustain their yields and remain profitable for as long and as best as they can. Some, in an effort to generate more income, may even try to invest their capital elsewhere, such as the stock market, or attempt vertical integration by building cabins or renting out their home on Airbnb. Such distractions unavoidably reduce the time that the farmer can now spend actively and productively farming, let alone thinking about ways in which to improve upon the farm for the future. Treading water gets tiring. In conclusion, inflation wreaked by unsound fiat money is irreconcilable with environmental conservation. It is for this reason why contemporary notions of sustainability, which operate from within an inflationary economic system based on fiat money, a system which is predicated on infinite growth, does not, cannot, and will not align with the limitations set and imposed by a planet comprised of finite resources. In short, fiat money is unsustainable. Bitcoin fixes this. The root problem with conventional currency is all the trust that's required to make it work. The central bank must be trusted not to debase the currency but the history of fiat currencies is full of breaches of that trust. I've been working on a new electronic cash system that's fully peer-to-peer with no trusted third party. Satoshi Nakamoto. The magic internet money that is Bitcoin is more, much more than just magic internet money. Bitcoin is a scarce decentralized digital currency without a central bank, CEO, or other single administrator. It operates as a distributed peer-to-peer network where users can send and receive money without the need for intermediaries. Bitcoin is the exact opposite of unsound and unsustainable fiat money. Bitcoin makes fiat obsolete and makes environmental, economic and socially sustainable goals actually attainable. Bitcoin is the first digital resource ever to exist. It is inflation resistant by design. There will never be more than 21 million bitcoins issued ever. Therefore, Bitcoin is scarce. Bitcoin is divisible. One Bitcoin is made up of 100 million sats, short for Satoshis, in honor of Bitcoin's pseudonymous creator, Satoshi Nakamoto. Sats are fractions of a Bitcoin that can be divided any way you wish. Bitcoin is frictionless. It can be sent via email, text message, or even paper, essentially for free and in real time to anyone anywhere in the world without the help of a trusted third party. Bitcoin is verifiable. Many have tried, but Bitcoin uses high-level cryptography to ensure it cannot be copied, faked, or counterfeited. Bitcoin is global, like the internet, email, or even gold itself. Bitcoin is distributed all around the world. It is decentralized and cannot be controlled by any one person or any one country. Bitcoin is open-source software, meaning it is not owned by any one person or company. Everyone is free to own it, use it, and contribute to it. Bitcoin is the newest technology to serve the function of money for the world, and the soundest money the world has ever known. Bitcoin is the antithesis of quantitative easing. It is quantitative hardening, meaning simply, rather than a central bank issuing more units over time and making them worth less, Bitcoin's protocol is such that it issues less units over time, thus making them worth more. This makes Bitcoin the ultimate store of value, empowering individuals to save their money, time and energy. Because of this inflation-resistant characteristic, in conjunction with its other sound monetary properties which are inherent to the protocol, Bitcoin gives people who work by trading their time and energy the ability to protect the money they earn by doing so in an asset that dynamically appreciates in value over time. Bitcoiners often refer to this inimitable technology by the acronym NGU, number go up. NGU strongly incentivizes savings, and savings have always been, and always will be, a net benefit to humanity. Savings. The ability to save and preserve the product of our labor is essential to human flourishing and civilization. Fiat money surreptitiously suggests, there's more where that came from whereas in actual fact, the world and its resources are fundamentally finite. Savings offsets debt and is a mitigation against uncertainty. Savings enables one to face the future with increasing confidence. Savings adds value to society and gives individuals more control over the way they live their life and choose to spend their time. The ability to save frees up an individual's time and allows them to pursue the things that truly interest them and make them happy perhaps crafting and creating things that others find valuable and may even wish to trade for, which of course results in an overall increase in the satisfaction of the coincidence of wants, leading to a virtuous cycle of even more happiness, creativity and productivity. Never a bad thing. Savings makes possible the potential for individuals to generate and investigate a myriad of new ideas and seek out potentially valuable discoveries that were hitherto impossible to dream up before, due to a fundamental lack of time, energy, and indeed, money. Thus, savings supports a more enthusiastic mode of being for individuals and a more fulfilled and realized society overall. Sound money empowers all manner of remarkable and possible futures for humanity. Imagine if more farmers, viticulturists, swine growers, literally anyone's hard work, was honored by the ability to generate meaningful savings. Imagine that Because of such savings, they had less uncertainty and more confidence in the future. That they had more time to focus on improving their land, their environment, their farms, their crops, their products, and thus their families, their community, their place in the world for generations to come. Imagine that just by using a sound money which empowers them to save, they could do all this instead of merely maintaining such things just to keep up with the rising cost of production, and the increasing costs of living. Imagine living generation to generation instead of year to year, crop to crop. Imagine the explosion of knowledge and expansion of understanding about our environment that would ensue if people could confidently, safely and securely store their time and energy in a money that really incentivizes savings because its value rises over time, thanks to its inimitable network effects and inherent sound money properties. Imagine if we all had the innate ability to store our time and energy, to save our money and preserve our wealth in something like Bitcoin, whose monetary policy is enforced by the many, not the few. A money that is governed by rules, not rulers. A money which ensures that the time and energy we trade in order to earn it, save it, and in doing so generate valuable, meaningful wealth, which is protected from being debased, devalued and diluted by immutable math and code. Just imagine how such an unassuming thing like money, sound money, could be a net benefit not only to us and our individual well-being, but to our families, our communities, our society, our environment and its ecology, and thus to our civilization more generally. Imagine. Sustainable sound money. Fix the money, fix the world, as the new saying goes. Unlike inflationary fiat currencies, which foster malinvestment and favour infinite growth of finite resources, Bitcoin supports savings and thus shrewd and sustainable investment into products and services that promote efficiencies and innovation, that drive general improvement over time. Bitcoin is the solution to the problem of Wendell Berry's agricultural strip miner, who exploits the environment for short-term profit. It is the solution to the problem of our hypothetical winemaker who is trying to improve the quality of her wines in the face of insurmountable inflation. And it is the solution to the problem of an increasing amount of producers, marketers, and organizations misusing the term sustainable, co-opting it, and degrading its meaning in order to promote and sell more high-velocity, superficially green stuff. In short, Bitcoin makes contemporary notions of sustainability true and tenable. Furthermore, by way of dispelling any lurking fear, uncertainty, or doubt regarding Bitcoin's energy use, one of Bitcoin's most brilliant features is in its increasing utilization of renewable, stranded, and non rival energy resources to power the network, especially when compared to the hidden costs of the incumbent petrodollar system. For the first time in human history, we have a technology that directly financially incentivizes the discovery of cheaper ways to harness energy, regardless of geographical location consumer demand or other historical hindrances to energy generation this makes bitcoin significantly practicably and infinitely more environmentally financially and socially sustainable than any other money or commodity or product that comes with or without the superficial code of greenwash that one may try to apply bitcoin is the solution to the problem of the corruption and manipulation of money wrought by our current defective fiat-based economic system a system which promotes inequality and environmental destruction by involuntarily incentivizing the slide to immoral and inherently unsustainable individual and communal actions, which, as I have argued, often yield harmful negative externalities as well as unseen and unintended consequences. Saving the world starts with saving money. Bitcoin changes the incentive structure by providing everyone everywhere on earth with the ability to save by storing their time and energy in the soundest money the world has ever known. NGU means an increase in value. An increase in value means more purchasing power. More purchasing power means more wealth. More wealth means more time. More time means more freedom to do the things you want, say, develop the means and methods to truly live, work and farm your land, your place, sustainably, With sincerity. Bitcoin's bright orange color belies its profoundly green core. Indeed, Bitcoin is a gift of regeneration and reparation for Earth and its inhabitants. Bitcoin empowers humanity to become deeply and sincerely sustainable because it enables people to save their time and energy in the hardest money the world has ever known. Remember, a civilization's culture, and therefore its agriculture, runs downhill from the money. Fix the money. Fix the farming, fix the world. Right. So, uh, what did you think? (laughs) um, Yeah, that's my contestation, and I genuinely think that Bitcoin plays a role in uh, achieving true, sincere sustainability rather than this fiat economic system which constantly devalues our time and energy and effectively strip mines us of our value. Um, So, you know, maybe listen through it again, jump on the website honanddaniel.com, click on unsustainable sustainability, that's the link at the top there, and read it for yourself. You can check all the references as well out um, as well. There's an entire list of references at the bottom of the article. Uh, which you can go through and do a little bit more investigation, a little bit more reading. And uh, you know if you have any ideas, if you uh, agree with me or disagree with me or um, think that I'm mad, well, tell me. We'll reach out and tell me and uh, we'll either jump, get on the podcast and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it or we can exchange an email or a text message or a DM on Twitter or Instagram, whatever. So uh, thanks for listening. Thank you for your support. And uh, we'll speak to you next time on the Fermenting Place podcast. Thank you